you know, at the end of the day, I think that, you know, operators that are out there, you know, on the ground, pushing electronics that are flying our aircraft, need to realize there's a potential they won't have comms. There's a potential for that. And so let's take the, the pace plan that is, you know, maybe always on the shelf, blow the dust off it and take it seriously and exercise that. As a reminder to listeners, all topics discussed are unclassified, and views expressed by guests or hosts are not necessarily the position of the United States Air Force or the Department of Defense. Welcome back to the Deciphering Doctrine podcast. Uh, my name is Harrison Meyer. I'm a captain in AFSOC. And I am uh, Captain Matt Berkstead. Today we'll be talking about transitioning the Air Force uh, from the global war on terror and counter violent extremist organizations uh, into the great power competition. Today we have Colonel Anthony Sampson and Mr. Casey Brooks in the studio with us. Uh, Serge, you might tell us about yourselves. Um, don't mind at all. First of all, thank you guys for having me. Um, so, cyberspace operations officer um, by trade. I started off in communications way back in the day. Um, I've done a lot of stuff in my career. Some of the highlights. I've you know ran a base um, network and a network control center. Um, I was the support branch chief when there was an information warfare center uh, back in um, early 2000s. Um, I got a chance to be the chief of the Joint Cyber Center at U.S. Southern Command. Um, we did full spectrum operations, including partner nation engagements, um, intel, um, a lot of good things there. Um, and now I am the Air University Cyber Chair. Um, basically what that means is I'm the liaison between operational Air Force entities, Air Force and DOD, so it includes Cybercom, um, and the Air University schoolhouses, including you know, AFID, Air War College, SOS, all the schools, Senior NCO Academy to make sure that the curriculum um, that I would say cyber and information warfare, if, you know, that's a thing, there'll be a debate later on that. Um, equities are represented in the curriculum. So, so everyone in the Air Force is learning something about cyber and what we're trying to call information warfare um, these days, as well as um, helping out students with research. When students are doing cyber-related research, I try to you know, reach out to Cybercom and other organizations and get support um, for them. And I also teach at the War College, so I teach leadership and and war fighting, campaign planning, um, have my degree in information operations, a master, uh, master's in that, PhD in management. And so I'm an instructor at War College, that's what I do. Uh, Casey Brooks, far less impressive than the Colonel. Um, I am a retired security forces officer, uh, been a commander, been deployed. After I had to decide it was time to grow up in the Air Force, uh, became a civilian, I went into cybersecurity actually I uh, was privileged to work uh, with one of the NOSs, uh, the Network Operations Squadron, as a project manager on the defensive cyber operations side. I'm also a certified threat analyst, so kind of helped build one of the threat intelligence programs for the Air Force's Doden Ops. Now, from there, when I came back here to Air University to teach joint operations, where I help airmen learn how to operate inside a joint environment. When they get deployed to a JTF, you know, they, they get in the halls and everything is spelled Army, and they're trying to figure out what to do. So what the Air Force uh, gave me the privilege to do was to help teach folks how to get out there and be effective right away, teaching them what a battle uh, rhythm is, teaching them about OPTs. It's actually a lot of fun, and one of the great things about LeMay Center, where I work, is we managed to evolve that course to actually give them their current classified uh, op order for the mission that they were being deployed to. So they were absolutely ready to go. And then finally, today, why I'm here is I actually work in the Air Force Doctrine Development Office. I am the AO that was responsible for AFDP 312 Cyberspace Operations and 313 Informations in Air Force Operations. So kind of one of the most relevant things I'm bringing here today is that both of those documents are now signed by our commander and published for the Air Force. So by the time anyone's listening to this podcast, you'll have new guidance to look at. And that's a big part of what we're discussing today. That's uh, why I'm here. Sounds great. So uh, we're at a great time of change here. We're transitioning really from a war on terror, which has been the last 20 years, 20 years that, yeah. that the uh, the Air Force has really been focused on uh, in both, both Iraq, Afghanistan, and um, a few other locations, and we're now preparing for the next fight. And we haven't really seen something like this in the post 9-11 world. What do you think that that conflict looks like? Both the Colonel and I raised our hand to join up in the service last century when you know things were still a little in flux with a great power competition, but what we like to call the Cold War, uh, our enemy had the discourtesy to fall apart before we got into the fight. <laughs> so uh, I actually raised my hand the same year as the Gulf War. So as a cadet, 
I did not get to participate. But going into that, our idea of war was going tanks rolling the folded gap, aircraft mixing it up over, you know, the skies of Europe, possibly fighting in the Pacific. So when you say the post 9-11 world, it's important for a lot of us to understand that that is your frame. You are looking at the world since 9-11. So it does seem a little bit alien that we would have to retool, reorganize and get ready for great power competition, which really is just back to total war between major nations who've got big armies. So I think it's not fair to you guys to say, you know, we need to go back to the future or whatever. But I do think it's important to note that it is not a new problem set for our military, for our Air Force. As a matter of fact, we were literally constructed with the idea <laughs> that we need to have 300 F-22s because the Russians are going to have, you know, 6,000 MiG-21s or whatever seventh or eighth generation they may think they're at right now. But the point is, is that our Air Force was founded on the idea that we need to be able to fight at that level. The counter VEO fight really did take our eyes off the ball. And, you know, maybe the Colonel has a thought on this, but you're not driving in Humvees and you're not flying F-15s and F-22s because of the counter VEO fight. That's all the result of being prepared for the big fight. We've just got to, in my opinion, humble opinion, we're just relearning how to execute. I agree with that. I think I'll also talk out of both sides of my mouth immediately um, because, you know, one of the things we like to say to war college is, you know, the nature of war doesn't change. The character of war does. And so, you know, so a lot of things that we've been doing for years that we've trained for for years um, still apply. You know, there's still an um, element of finding what the adversary center of gravity is. There's an element of, of information, you know, that is relevant. Even though it just became a joint function in recent years, it's really always been an, an element of war. Um, but the character of war has changed, you know, especially as a cyber guy, you know, based on the nature of, of the cyber threat, of the advancing space threat. And so, you know, kind of like Casey said, since I, I came in in 2000, and 9-11 was right after that. So I've only known a, an Air Force and a military that... Um, spoke counterinsurgency that spoke, you know, VEOs, but we've done this before, you know, before that did have, you know, Desert Storm. I don't know that I wouldn't call that a near peer, you know, which is what we're going into now. The closest we can go back to um, where we had a near peer really was that we engaged in and actually bullets flew was World War II. You know, we've had skirmishes, we've had conflict, armed conflict since then, but not with a near peer, the closest we came was with the former Soviet Union. And we're at a time right now where even many of our young general officers, you know, they don't know much about, you know, that time. So one of the things we're doing in the, in the war college is training our officers, our 05, 06 level folks, um, trying to retool them, get, you know, change their mindset to refocus on, you know, from just counterinsurgency, just VEOs to great power competition and what that looks like. And we have some of the, the older heads, you know, come in and, and talk. We, we study history. Uh, we study World War I, World War II, um, you know, conflict, you know, Cold War with, with Soviet Union um, to give them some, some insight there. One of the, some of the things that I think about, think are different, excuse me, is um, just inherently think we're calling them, we're calling China and Russia peers, right? So that just implied in that means uh, maybe there is, you know, superiority can be questioned, whether we'll just, whether air superiority can be assumed. Um, resistance, you know, we went into, you know, Iraq really with, you know, minimal resistance. We anticipate resistance now. Uh, we're in a contested environment that's continually contested. I mean, all this time when we've been feeling like we haven't been at war with China, they've been, they've taken the mentality that they're not at peace with us. So they've been preparing, you know, for this. They're playing the hundred year game. Um, and so we need to start you know, kind of catching up and playing that game too. And so in terms of China's A2AD capability, anti-access, you know, area denial capability, that threatens our superiority. Um, in terms of their cyber, electromagnetic spectrum, base capabilities, and potential for cutting off our C2, that presents a threat. Um, and so these are definitely new challenges that we need to figure out how we're gonna face and what we're gonna do about it. I'll turn it back on you guys. Um, you have, both the post 9-11 perspective, so you're, you're better to talk to the audience about the military you came up in, but you're now getting a preview of what war looks like over in Eastern Europe. What are you guys seeing? What are you talking amongst yourselves as far as the character and nature of war? From 
my experience that I've seen in the cyber career field so far, um, we've kind of always had a little bit more of a focus on these bigger potential threats. Because when you look at it, the, the conflict out in the Middle East, uh, I don't really feel like uh, we really had that much of a, a cyber threat to defend against. So taking offensive actions, we, we certainly could have done some of that to help out with people who are actually boots on ground out there. I feel like from the defense perspective, we, we've kind of always had our eyes more on these um, China and Russia as our uh, previously near peer, now peer competition. So that's my perspective on things as a cyber officer. In both aircraft I've flown, it's not been the priority. And that discussion really only started about a year ago. Um, over in, in the Flying Squadron, we talked to it. Frankly, I think we, we've paid it a bit of lip service over the last, or over the, the course of my career. Um, we talk to it and we say we train to it, but there's a lot of specifics that we don't actually take to their final conclusion. We don't fully practice. We don't fully train to those things. I, I will say that, that we're getting better at it. Uh, just last year, we, we did do an exercise base-wide um, at Herbert Field to practice completely cutting out power, both primary and backup, um, and then continuing to fly our normal daily ops uh, for 24 hours, the base did that. Um, the point was to see where we were deficient, where we needed to either acquire more gear, train people to do other things, et cetera. But I would say that that's not the standard. That is not the norm. And as an so APSOC unit, sorry, sir, as an APSOC unit, you probably have a, a bit of urgency about making sure that you know you need to look at this right away because it'll affect you quicker. Exactly. Um, that's, that's one of the biggest reasons that uh, I, I wanted to come and talk to this because I don't know that we are necessarily training our people to the, the standard of a near period yet. I don't know that as a service wide, there might be parts of it, you know, Matt just described that they are, that, that they've always had their eyes more set on that near peer, that peer adversary. Uh, I don't know that that's Air Force wide. And it does seem like these are questions that leadership, but also people like myself and Matt need to be asking because ultimately we're all gonna go together into a near peer conflict. You know, we kind of need to be ready top to bottom. So I'll say a couple of things. One is yeah, what you just said gives me hope actually that you, you know that there's evidence that there are pockets of organizations that are are actually exercising as if the threat is real, um, as if we are moving towards wave power competition. I remember all the way back as far as 2006, 2007, when I was at the Information Warfare Center, we, uh, again, from a cyber perspective, we used to do, send cyber folks to, to Nellis, you know, for a you know, flying exercise. And, and there was even talk way back then about a potential, you know, threat of cyber, maybe disrupting C2 um, connections between, you know, aircraft and the, the, the AOC. Um, and at that time, it was something that was just kind of glossed over. It was white carded. You know, we send cyber guys out there and somebody waves a white flag. Hey, let's pretend cyber's gone for, you know, C or C2's, you know, gone for a couple minutes. Okay, continue the exercise. Cyber guys, you go over there and play. Uh, well, I was just at the, at Nellis last year, talking to the commander that was in charge of, of that, you know, kind of incorporating cyber into red flag. And he, you know, said to me, I don't know if this happens every year, but that they're actually exercising now. We're actually taking serious, um, you know, maybe cut off the lights, you know, for real and not just white carded and see what we do, you know, exercise the fact that we might have to, you know, go to our, you know, our other letters in a pace plan. If for those who don't know, that's, you know, the primary alternate contingency and emergency plans for whatever communication, for instance, maybe we have to pull out, you know, old school pen and paper and do some of those things. So I think there are pockets of organizations and you kind of just proved it in your example that are, are thinking about that and are actually exercising that. The fact that we've even gone to this, you know, ACE construct, um, agile compound employment, you know, you know, ordered by the chiefs, you know, some years ago, to me proves that at an institutional level, we're going the right direction because I mean, part of the, the underlying reason for ACE, for distributed, you know, air ops is an acceptance that, you know, hey, our, our commanders out there, our flyers out there might be cut off from the AOC. You know, we might be, we're not gonna necessarily be in a permissive environment where, um, in the AOC or, or commanders are always, C2 is there's a perfect link, everybody's always connected. So I would say my, so that gives me hope that we are going the right direction, even though it may seem slow for some. Um, my concern is, you know, is it moving fast enough? 
Mm-hmm. I mean, you listen to what China's saying, think about 2030, you know, it was 2030, now we're going down to 2027, next thing you know, it might be 26. Mm-hmm. You know, that they plan on having a, a level of capability where maybe they feel comfortable making a move and maybe hits the fan. You know, we all hope not, but, you know, with that timeline, are we accelerating change fast enough, you know, to get there? So I do have hope, but I hope that, you know, we are on the right timeline for making the changes we need, you know, as a, as a service. Yes. to be prepared for that. Mm-hmm. Yes, sir. And, you know, along what you said there, we are operating on the 2027, possibly even the 2025. You know, inherent in that is that, you know, China's isn't a 2023 plan or a 2024 plan. So there's perhaps a mismatch in how our competitors are looking at the problem set and how we're looking at the problem set. Um, to what you said, as far as preparing us, exercises. I love that. Um, and I'm going to turn it to Matt. You're a cyber operator. What is your idea of a, you know, a bad day in cyber where you're dealing with that peer near peer threat at the unclassified level? You know, do you really have a, a good no power plan for cyber? I'm sure that there are probably organizations that definitely have things go really bad if we lose power. Because, I mean, you can lose power for all types of reasons. You can have bad weather and it can get rid of power. Uh, I'm sure there are organizations that have a plan for that situation. Um, the current organization that I am in, uh, I do not feel like that is the case, um, but that's kind of because of the, the specific organization I'm in right now. We're an operational test unit. Um, so if we don't have power, like that doesn't really affect us and our capabilities that much. Um, okay. Certainly it probably hurts us. I don't, I don't think it's really enough of the, to the point where we need to start thinking about it and planning out for it. So can I throw something in there, Casey? I, yes, I would sir. say, you know, to that, that point, there are a lot of organizations out there that are, are focused on, you know, defensive cyberspace operations, um, defending the Doden, you know, from the, the NAS that's here locally in, in Montgomery to all the folks down at 16th Air Force, mm-hmm. um, you know, that you do the good work that they do. And the threat that, we are facing, you know, from a defensive standpoint, is massive, is enormous, innumerable. You know, we're under constant, you know, you know, threat of attack or, or ping or incident, whatever you want to call it. Um, you know, probably thousands daily, you know, that are coming in. And it's almost a, a problem that I wouldn't say that definitely we haven't given up on, but we're, you know, continually taking steps to, to try to shore up our network, you know, moving to you know, a zero trust, but that basically means that, you know, even though you're on the network, we don't trust you to go everywhere on the network, you know, kind of approach. All of DOD is moving that direction. So there's things we're doing to show up our, our layered defense. But I think even more than that, we have come to the realization that, that there, the threat is uh, potent enough to where we need to plan. I don't want, I hate to call it inevitable because it sounds like there's no way to stop it, but potentially inevitable. Where we, when we're, when we are facing the tyranny of distance and we're in the South China Sea, that potentially we could, you know, be out of contact. we could be out of contact. Um, and no matter what our, you know, cyber defenders do about it, you know, they, the other team practices too. And so they may have some capabilities to, to do that. You know, we, you know, as a community, cyber community, we continue to take the steps we take to try to shore up our defenses, you know, even to maybe reach out and touch someone, you know, beforehand, you know, there's, you know, doctrine on that. Um, Very good discussion. Yeah. So, you know, stuff we can't get into, but, you know, at the end of the day, I think that, you know, operators that are out there, you know, on the ground, pushing electronics that are flying our aircraft need to realize there's a potential they won't have comms. There's potential for that. And so let's take the, the pace plan that is, you know, maybe always on the shelf, blow the dust off it and take it seriously and exercise that. And I think that, you know, I, I think that's more, that's closer to a solution that we can rely on, that we can maybe potentially go into conflict with than to, to feel like, you know, they're not going to, yeah, they're not going <laughs> to. I want to, I want to, I want to, I want to springboard yeah. off what you said, because you did start talking about the pace plan. And I love the pace plan. Fortunately, in the Air Force, all we're talking about is the ACE plan. And, you know, agile combat employment, something important for the audience, it is not anything more than a schema maneuver. ACE is not going to solve all of our problems. It's it's an approach for us to think about it. We have to, you know, well, I say we, you in the operational Air Force, you got to keep it in perspective. Um, The PACE plan, you know, ACE with a P, is very important in the, great power competition peer fight that we're looking at because, again, I I direct you to Eastern Europe. 
we're not talking about in a slightly inconvenient combat environment. We're talking about one in which the electromagnetic spectrum is jacked. We're talking about one in which there is no expected safe haven, you know, of an operating location um, once you get long-range ballistics involved. And I think it's important for the officers, the enlisted, the civilians in the Air Force to really start thinking about how do I actually continue to do my job in an environment where I don't have, you know, we've said the, the term the white card injection, and I think if folks out there really don't understand it, you go into an operational exercise and we decide not to really make it hurt because then we won't achieve our, our learning objectives or we won't achieve our exercise. We won't get to inspect whether or not, you know, you can load up the F-15 in record time if the F-15 is a burning wreck. Um, but the reality of the next war is the adversary has had 20-something years to, to read our doctrine and our operating manuals, and they've decided that our aircraft are, are far better targets on the ground, but I think that's actually old military knowledge, that you want to hit it before it flies. As a cop, I can tell you, coming up through the, uh, the last century there, the field telephone has its own power because you have to have an airman actually sit there and crank the thing in order to make a phone call. You know, we had to exercise pace even in good times because we didn't always get the gas we needed. Um, and you had to manage bullets and you had to operate in the cold. And so uh, when I go back to that old knowledge, I think I'm looking at you guys as, yeah, we talk pace. But when we talk pace, do you have any real experience with the idea of, of coming up with a, a way to, you know, a backup in emergency or is a primary and alternate a contingency and an emergency? You know, the emergency is I got to light a fire, hold a solar panel so that I can turn the laptop on. But do you guys think about that or do you have practical experience or vignettes that you might be able to share? I've flown in AFSOC for a few years. Uh, my first aircraft was the, the CV-22 Osprey. Um, and, and one of the biggest things that, that we often talked about, uh, because although I don't know how great we are institutionally at the PACE plan, uh, some of the other services uh, are fantastic at it. They, they live, breathe, and die PACE. Mm -hmm. um, and, and so whenever you go to a joint uh, exercise, the pace plan is exercised fully. Um, and and one, of the, one of the biggest things that we always talked about was a pace plan as far as identifying LZs. Mm -hmm. So primary is always the frequency. Primary is always, we can, we can talk to you. But being an Osprey, being that we were uh, flying in helicopter mode lots of the time on the way into the LZ, you're very low. And so you might not have line of sight with the trees or whatever else. Um, now, take that to fighting uh, a great power conflict, and maybe you don't have comms because you haven't had comms for the last hour because of exactly what you guys are talking about with the cyber in, uh, attacks and intrusions. Um, and, and so we do talk about some of those other uh, options, whether it's visually, whether uh, there's a signal on the ground, uh, all, all different sorts of things like that. And I will say that places where pace is not fully exercised, I've definitely seen some other services that use it and teach it when we do those joint exercises. So it's good to see that and good to see how some other services that do things better than we do. And, and we certainly do things better than they do in, in other areas. So. Um, you know, you guys were talking about how we're not reinventing the wheel. We are, while we are going back to a mindset of total war with a near peer, um, we're, we're not reinventing that idea. This is not a, a new idea. Uh, similarly, I, I think that other services are doing things that might be weaknesses of ours and, and, and vice versa as well. I don't know if that's exactly what you were driving at. No, it's perfect Mr. because it, it really does bring home a point that we see it exercised in other services. Mm -hmm. Now, one of the things to talk about, the nature of the Air Force is such, we don't do what the Marines do. So we're not necessarily gonna have a few jerry cans of fuel and, and things like that. It may be for those listening to start thinking about where your mission set would allow you to do a little preparation in the event you lost a critical resource. Certainly. What do you think, sir? Um, actually, Harris just made me think of something. I mean, it's related to this topic, but you talked about the other services doing, you know, things, certain things better than, than we do as an Air Force. Um, when you think ACE, there's, there's some dependencies. One of those things is the idea of mission command. I don't know how much that's, you know, you guys have seen that idea being promoted, the idea that just you, know, you delegate down to the lowest level, you know, authority to, to go execute a mission. 
you know, with an understanding of a commander's intent. That's gonna be critical, you know, us kind of shifting our culture a little bit to do more of mission command, um, to be able to trust our pilots that are disconnected from the AOC, you know, to, to go, you know, they have, you know, whatever ATO they have, you know, maybe it's more than 24 hours, maybe it's 72 hours, and they understand commander's intent so they can still go execute the mission. You know, maybe that's how it plays itself out. But that's something else that, you know, when you talk to an army guy, you talk mission command, he calls that leadership. Like, what was mission command? You know, that's, so that's something that um, we as an Air Force maybe need to do a better job at propagating more. Um, that, you know, fortunately we fight jointly and, you know, we'll, we can learn from some of other services on, you know, how to do that better. But that's, you know, ACE, you know, being successful depends on, on that as well. And there might be some other dependencies that it has. So that's what, what came to mind in that discussion. Nice. And we are actually working on a mission command aspect for doctrine you know it was introduced at afpd1 but it hasn't really been elaborated on and you know general brown has said we may never slap the table on how ace goes but we do know that mission command has to be a part of how the culture reacts to this new environment so as we develop the process we're going to look for input from the air force and we're going to try and get this down into something uh, that makes sense to folks that's kind of the, one of the fun things about doctrine is we actually get to sit at our desks across from other folks who are interested in the topic and just jawbone until we do come up with the right answer. And we have access to all of the experts across the field. So it's not just a, oh, okay, on Thursday, I'm going to come up with mission command doctrine. No, we're reaching back. We're reaching back into other services. We're reaching back into history. Believe it or not, there are Air Force generals who've talked about mission command, but I agree it was in a different time when aircraft were probably a little more durable and a little less dependent upon all of those external resources and, you know, a 55-gallon drum of fuel and a box of ammo could be loaded up quickly and you can get back into the fight because it was a different time. We have a very complex and technical Air Force today that has a lot of dependencies and it's going to be on, you know, forces like yourself got to get out there and work things a little by the seat of your pants perhaps when you can't talk um, back to the mothership but guess what you're well trained that's probably the best thing about the american armed forces is we're really well trained we are uh, we joke as an instructor in joint doctrine we often joke that uh the soviets were a hundred percent into our doctrine you know i mean they expended effort to get the spies in before the internet to actually grab a copy of american doctrine and we always made the joke that you know there's a note from an, a soviet lieutenant that says yeah, the american doctrine is very comprehensive and we just wish they would follow it so i did joke about uh you know coming to work in a place that writes books no one reads but it really is it's fascinating oh we read it the war college <laughs> <laughs> yes, sir um let's push to the next uh, issue here, which is going to be talking about the doctrine. You know, I started off the podcast saying that we just updated AFDP 312, cyberspace operations. It's out there. You've got JP 312, joint cyberspace operations. For those out in the audience who are depending upon that guidance from both the joint force and the higher headquarters, we put it out there, but there's a lot of things going on. We've had to update definitions. We've had to the last one was published in 2011, I believe. We've actually had to update how cyber works. So I know from the standpoint of the cyber operators, you've got questions. Uh, there are things that you guys want to know. But if we could, at a higher level, what are some things that we can answer for you? So I'll, I'll try to start off a little easier. Um, so one thing about the cyber world is it is a world that evolves at the speed of light. Like yes. the, the bits move at the speed of light. Um, so if, if we have a this world, this domain that evolves that quickly, uh, is the like the review timeline that we we follow for doctrine. Um, so I've been told or I've I've heard that it's typically it tries to happen every roughly every two years. Uh, so if you have a domain that is evolving as rapidly as cyber can evolve, uh, is a two year timeline to review make updates is that enough or is it would it be beneficial to to try to go through with some expedite but expedited timeline uh or is there even like other documents and other places 
where these rapid evolutions are better captured and, um, and noted? Excellent question. Look, I, I'm going to commit some heresy here, but if you're going to doctrine, figure out how to operate on a keyboard, maybe you need retraining. Doctrine is, by its nature, best practices, historic lessons learned. It's a good place to start. It's not the answer to your problems. As a matter of fact, doctrine usually represents the FAQ. You know, after everybody has screwed something up or done something well, it'll end up in doctrine. So what I say is this. Your TTPs, your 3-1s, your AFMANs, your DAFMANs, your AFIs, your policy documents, those can be updated by a squadron commander in some cases. Those can be updated by a career function. That's where you're going to learn how to do stuff. And you're right, you know, if Moore's Law even still applies, um, because I was over in the NOS doing, you know, Doden Ops and, and threat analysis maybe four or five years ago now. And since then, the nature of the threat is beyond what we were trying to do on the cutting edge then. And that's just simply because who are you fighting in that environment? It's not always a, a pure state actor. It's every script kitty who wants to get his name out there in foreign countries. You know, I always say as, as much as I'm worried about Vlad, I'm, I'm more worried about Paolo down there in South America who's figured out how he can break into the, the latest version of Windows 11 because he's a dangerous individual. So doctrine is not going to necessarily give you today's answer. It's going to tell you how over time we've evolved to where we are today. That's the best thing I can tell you. As far as a review process, we could theoretically update Doctrine every six months and still be out of date. You know, we take the hit on 3.12 being as old as it is, but um, Doctrine, in a sense, is a collaborative process. We actually go to the field for input. Believe it or not, there have been numerous attempts over the last 11 years to update our Doctrine. It's just after we get to a certain point of arguing that the technology or, you know, the current ops versus what works best, it's just fallen to the wayside. So quite a Herculean effort on the part of the task, the community. Um, when we did our latest writing group, we actually involved some uh, operators from over in the Middle East. They dialed in to call and, and let us know what was going on. And then we went into a long process of coordination. So your TTPs, your policy, that's going to help you. Those can evolve quickly depending on your MAGCOM or, you know, 16th Air Force, God bless them, they can work on a lot of magic. Um, but at the end of the day, your doctrine is going to be kind of a recap of what went well. So while the best thing about doctrine is that it's, it's there for you to help you and to understand the best place to start, one of the other functions that we're going to bring to is we work with the joint community. So terminology, you know, we say it all the time, words matter. If I call something a program that has a lot of, you know, meaning to, it. you know, if I call it a program of record it's an even more important meaning but if i call it the concept now we're now we're giving you a lot more leeway to do things believe it or not but once i call it doctrine it's like okay well you've proven that this works you know you do this that's uh been a big battle on some things but i would say to your question are there better venues yeah your ttps your afmans your policy your afis that's where you go for your daily guidance um and you use doctrine when you got to come up with new ways of doing things uh so i, I have a with your answer that you have, I, I have a follow-on question now for Colonel Sampson. Is so he mentioned that the TTPs, the policies, that stuff is is the better place uh, to uh, capture all of this, the rapid evolution. Do you think that um, our career fields do a good job of of keeping up with the updates in those documents? I'm not going to say it's not relevant, but what I feel like is is more relevant. First, tied to what Casey said, I completely agree that doctrine is really just a collection of best practices. You know, it gives you a way to strategically frame an issue, operationally frame an issue. It's not TTPs, you know, that we operate on. And if an Army guy was in here, they'd be blasphemy, you know. <laughs> um, but, but yes, you know, it's, it's a, a toolkit, you know, as recommendations based on best practices. Um, the fact that we call it best practices implies that there's been reps and sets of a certain thing happening. And with the speed that our domain is evolving, um, you know, how long does it take? How many reps and sets do you need of something affirmed before you feel comfortable with putting it in doctrine? You know, that's, there can be a debate on that. And if, you know, hey, we've done it this way for a year, it looks good, and then the next year it changes, do we really want to be updating doctrine every year? I don't think so. 
Um, and so those other documents, do we want to really want to update those documents every year? Maybe. Um, um, but I think more important than that, I, I feel like we need a way to capture the evolution, you know, of our domain and TTPs and, you know, how we operate, which can be best captured really at your level and the, the guys who are the operators, who are the tacticians that are seeing how this plays out every day. Maybe you're relying on, on some doctrine, but maybe it's outdated because the, you know, the, the field's evolving. Um, you capture those, those lessons and, and allow that to feed its way into the system. And then maybe it ends up in doctrine, but I think our, in the evolution of our, of cyber um, and information warfare, or we'll stick with cyber because I know it's, you know, debate information, information warfare issues a debate. Um, I think that we're still in a, a period where there's going to be continuous evolution, you know, every year in less than a year um, time frame where um, it may just be more important to just capture those lessons learned, those TTPs uh, at the kind of at the tactical level beat them up, but don't maybe expect the, the folks at a strategic level, at the, the doctrine level, to just jump on board and add that to doctrine. Because by the time they add it in, you, you will get with them three months later and, and something's changed. Um, so I would say at the you know, tactical level, operational level, do a good job of capturing you know, what you're learning and what's wrong with the doctrine and just keep that updated. And I think maybe at some point in our field, whether it's a couple years from now or maybe 15 years from now, I mean, you look at the big seam of evolution of how this might evolve, um, we will, we, we may slow down <laughs> um, in, in, our, in our pace of evolution and have doctrine be more updated, or maybe we don't. Maybe things like AI and quantum keep this, you know, quick evolution going for many, many years to come. Um, I don't know. So I don't know that answers your question well, but that was, that was my thought. I, I did kind of put you on the spot. I just so something that you both mentioned, which I I'm curious about your thoughts. You, you both were talking about the rapid speed that both the cyber world and also just today's world is evolving. Uh, and I guess my question to you guys is: Is that development development at a necessity based on the cyber world and the way that that does rapidly change? Or is that development based on the necessity to catch up in and, and fill the void of our weaknesses for our adversaries? Yeah, I see the, the rapid change really being driven by industry um, and obviously the, the emerging technologies have strategic implications, you know, militarily. Um, and so we, you know, our, our adversaries have realized that we have realized that and they are setting a pace right now that we need to keep up with. I mean, that's why they're, they're our pacing threat. Mm -hmm. From a strategy aspect, our adversaries did one thing smart. They saw the effect of the Gulf War and they said, we may need to think about what we're doing. They watched it. And so the world evolved rapidly because of industry and technology. And like I said, you know, kid in South America with a good idea can get something on the global market. Um, the world evolved because of Amazon. The world evolved because of Google. It evolved for so many things. The problem was, honestly, for the military, we didn't evolve. We are still using legacy acquisition systems to get massive programs, to get really cool pieces of equipment to the battlefield that take 15 years to develop. I, uh, I laugh sometimes because I look at an F-22 flying around and I remember as a cadet hearing about the advanced tactical fighter that they started looking at in the 80s and, you know, we finally got it. And uh, as you know, it, we moved rapidly into the, the 35 because the 22 was already like, well, it's not exactly what we want, so let's get this new thing. And we're on the next new thing. You know, we've got the MQ-1C now and it's out there and it's testing because, let's face it, the revolution in military affairs, we didn't really want to rely on the drones, but sorry for you RPA guys, the drones. And so, but now, you know, I remember actually having a heated discussion with an F-16 pilot about the fact that you can never take the man out of the cockpit. We need situational awareness. And yeah, okay, I'm sure, uh, hopefully he's not in the box somewhere in uh, Nellis flying RPAs, because that's the reality. You know, we're not gonna try and throw 10,000 F-16s at the adversary, we're gonna try and be smart. So. The character of war has changed to 
the idea that we aren't going to have absolute control. New technologies have come in. They've changed what the battlefield is going to be for us. Our adversary was smart. They looked at us and they said, all right, what are the weak spots? The same thing we would do. They do center of gravity analysis, doctrinal term. And they looked and they said, where's the U.S. weak? And that's what they oriented themselves against. So where we require a large logistics capability, they're like, where can we blow up that logistics capability? You know, you never want to pretend your adversary is 10 feet tall, but I think I'm not committing any heresies by saying the Chinese have a pretty strong home field advantage in their area because they've spent 20 years working against our capabilities in that area. And when they find a weakness, they shore it up. We have been consistently moving forward on the idea that we have achieved excellence in military operations, and so we just need to refine slightly. And the adversary said, you know what, let's change the game. And that's why we're dealing what we're dealing with. So the world advanced. The United States military kept pace technologically with really cool things. But on the whole, we gave the adversary both the time and space necessary to develop a new strategy. You know, and you've come through this Air Force, you've come through our military. It takes a little while for us to respond to large systemic and institutional changes. And it's going to take a while, absent a shock, because again, remember, you know, when something blows up in Pearl Harbor, that's a shock, and you start tooling real quick. Something, you know, I'm from New York, so I can tell you, I used to walk outside. I did not care that the Twin Towers were there. It was just a thing in the background. Now that they're gone, kind of a big deal and it, it was a shock to the system that forced us to change the way we do things i just hope we figure out we need to change what we do before there's another shock that's how i would answer your question so i mean good points there casey i, I would say um so one of the points you made we're, we're somewhat talking about culture here maybe the air force culture maybe dod culture um and i've heard it said that for culture to change it takes a a dramatic event or just time um, and I would say that is amplified in a bureaucracy, you know, which is what, what we are. Um, and we have not just started the topics we've talked about. We've been talking about it for years. You know, I've been in 22 years and we've been talking about it since I was, you know, in you guys' shoes as, as captains. Um, but it's just, you know, been slow moving for whatever reason. Cultural change, maybe slow to slow to change. Um, funding, realities and limitations, you know, maybe part of that. Um, the lack of the reality of a threat, you know, a peer threat may have been part of part of that. But I think we we've come to a point where we've embraced that. No, no, this is real. We have a peer threat. You know, there's some there's some some changes that are have been dramatic. You know, one of the things we talked about before we kind of went live was the you know, enhanced budget authority. Now Cybercom has again, I'm yes. putting my cyber hat on, you know, thinking about that. That's something that, you know, would have been unheard of, unthought about, you know. 10 years ago, they're, they're now, uh, you know, full, you know, unified combatant command, you know, just that in itself. So I think we're moving in the right direction. We just, we are a bureaucracy and then, and um, some of these things take time. These things are dependent. Um, there's the word dependencies again, dependent on, could be Congress, you know, um, they can sometimes can go all the way up to that level. But again, I'm hopeful that we are, I believe we're going the right direction. So uh, you just brought up Cybercom. Um, you mentioned uh, rapidly changing outside world. Uh, so in the past few several years, um, China stood up their uh, strategic support force, kind of a uh, cyber and informational warfare type branch. Uh, Germany also has a cyber and information domain service, mm -hmm. uh, which is also kind of a cyber and information warfare branch. Um, from your guys' perspectives, the viewpoints that you have, uh, do you believe that there may be a benefit for the U.S. going forward and, and potentially standing up a cyber or informational warfare branch? Uh, potentially. I would say I'm not convinced of that yet. Um, I mean, you look at the, the establishment of the Air Force when we got from up under the tyranny of the Army, right? I'm saying that jokingly, right? But... I mean, one of the things was we wanted, you know, air-minded warriors. Um, we wanted um, some budget authority so that we could fund capabilities that would take or contribute to our contribute contribution to effects and operations to the next level. Um, having a new service like you know space, you know, just did would I think would definitely do that. Um, at the same time, I don't think that I think 
cyber, the cyber domain is so pervasive that other services wouldn't divest themselves, you know, and we couldn't divest them. We as in this new cyber core or, you know, cyber service, um, cyber force couldn't divest itself. Um, the services couldn't divest themselves of their cyber assets for this new cyber core or cyber service or whatever it was, um, which would be no different than our Air Force. You know, we, the, the Army has aircraft, Navy has aircraft, you know, um, the Air Force has sea, a sea vessel, you know, I think multiple sea vessels. And so um, I think if, if anything did happen, it would be along those lines. There would still be a requirement for cyber forces to get at the different service components, um, missions, um, cyber forces would have remained in those services, but maybe there would be a benefit to our nation to have folks that were were focused from a a mission standpoint, from a budget standpoint, um, on being cyber minded. Um, I'm just not. I think there is potential there. I'm just not convinced of that yet. That's my thoughts. I'm going to jump in and I'm going to say that uh, you know the way Cybercom is currently set up, and, and something for the audience to understand. The services execute Cybercom's operations, but they don't have a whole lot of authority to go out and do their own things. Now, the many squadron commanders out there right now are tearing their hair out, breaking stuff, but here's the thing. You'll have your service capabilities. There are things you are allowed to do, but on the whole, cyber operations, the OCO, the DCO, the DCO, IDM, these are offensive ops, de defensive ops, um, individual defensive measures, response actions, a lot of what goes on in cyber has to be authorized at Cybercom, at least somewhere in their chain. There are a lot for the operators out there. There's a lot of cyber that requires SecDef or presidential authority before you're going to do anything. So, you know, while doing the Doden Ops on the CTO is cyber operations, um, the stuff that we use to reach out and touch people, generally we do not have the authority to do ourselves. That's just the reality. So, this is where I kind of get into the speculative. The one fact here is that the 2022 NDAA gave U.S. Cyber Command enhanced budget authority. What does that mean? That means in FY24, Cyber Command is going to get control of the money. Now, does that mean they're going to take the forces away? I don't know. Does that mean that they're going to decide that there's going to be a unified cyber force? Again, I don't know. Uh, a, just a cursory reading of what was allowed says that they're going to have organizational control of the money for cyber force management. That scares a lot of people. It scares me. Because I think I remember we started talking about, well, you know, what we really need to do is probably give Space Command uh, enhanced budget authority over, you know, what's going on with space operations, and, and now it's gone. Now it's theirs completely, 100%. Um, so there's a risk that there's going to be changes to the way that we do things. Casey's opinion. Uh, the reality is the Comrail it's not going to change. We may go from a force that organized, trains, and equips cyber forces to get after the mission, but we still get after Cybercom's mission. If they take control of that, I think we will still organize, train, and equip forces to go and be a part of Cybercom the way we do for SOCOM. You know? Right now, that's the model that's being proposed, is that the Air Force will assess, the Air Force will train, and then the Air Force will say, okay, here you go, here's a, a ready-to-go cyber body, and then U.S. Cyber Command will go ahead and manage it from there. That is a possibility. That is not the way things are necessarily going to happen. I just know that a quick reading of the National Defense Authorization Act says that Cyber Command is going to have significant control over how resources are managed. So... I don't think on a day-to-day -day basis it's really going to matter so much for us because the cyber operation as currently handled by 16th Air Force is pretty transparent to most folks. Let's just put it this way. Kudos to them because if they weren't good at their job, you'd know about it. So the fact that you really don't even think about it, they're really good at what they do. You know, the big operations center down in San Antonio handles worldwide operations. And, and if you've never known that, yeah, the guys down there at the 616th, they do it really good job of, of supporting cybercom operations around the world air force missions everywhere so it's not like we aren't already kind of taking the cyber force and doing what needs to be done it really could be from a doctrinal standpoint the comrel command relationships 
might change a little bit depending on how you know the joint force decides the cyber forces will be operated. Uh, you may still be an airman who's a cyber operator. I think that's that's probably going to be a thing for a long time, unless and until we wake up and we're told there's a cyber force, kind of like the space force, and then you know fate accompli. <laughs> so, I feel like do we need a cyber force? Right now, we're doing a very fine job around the world of handling the cyber mission. But if the political leadership decides that we're going to have a cyber force, it'll happen. Just the way they decided we needed a space force, and it happened. You know, And God bless them, because if you look at the way that U.S. Space Command operates, everything above 62 miles belongs to them. And while we have great water cooler debates on, is that only above the Earth, or is it like everything? Because I want to know who's responsible for moon force. But... It's a, it'd probably make a great TV show. But honestly, this is the doctrinal debate because um, the mission still gets done. So I'm going to add to something what Casey said. He mentioned, um, and it's not going to answer your question at all, but it's just going to be a data point that adds to part of the discussion. Um, you mentioned that you know, some of the commanders were, you know, are, are scared of that idea. You know, and I think back to, I mean, just the idea that there is a cybercom. You go back a little bit. I mean, that scared some um, commanders back then, you just think if you're a combatant commander, combatant commanders fight war, services don't, right? Um, if you're a combatant commander, you want chokan, you want control over the forces that are going to execute your mission on your behalf. You don't want to have to go to another combatant command and ask Mother May I. Well, that's kind of what, you know, combatant commanders now have to do with Cybercom. Um, so there's already, you know, points of tension right there. Um, in the Air Force, I know there's, you know, it, it, some might not know, but there's this thing called MDTs, Mission Defense Teams. Um, originally, they were supposed to be, I think, 80-something of them. Wanted every, and, you know, most bases to focus on defending whatever the, the priority, you know, weapon system was on that base. Um, now there's potentially um, funding and support for, for less than 20. Um, and, but that's a, that is potentially a, a move that is made because the Air Force as a service is, you know, is afraid of, you know, Cybercom just, you know, taking control and have to have us having to ask Mother May I to do proper, you know, cyber defense on our own, you know, air assets. And so it just kind of, those two examples just kind of bring out a point, you know, Casey's, you know, I think part of what you were pointing out is just that there's inherent tensions, yes. you know, related to C2 structure, related with what commanders, you know, whether it's a commanders of bases or combat commanders have control over. Um, and at the end of the day, it, it's it's going to be a debate, I think, for a little while because cyber, you know, regardless of what commanders want, cyber capabilities, cyber um, warriors are a um, a high demand, low density asset. Right. You know, not just in the military, but just in our society, we're having a, a crisis of you know, you know, cybersecurity professionals, you know, having having enough, you know, that are available to take all the cybersecurity jobs. We're having a, you know, somewhat of a crisis, I hesitate to call it that, but in the military of keeping you know, our cybersecurity professionals um, from a recruiting and retention standpoint, that would be a whole other discussion. Um, and so with you know, our cyber capabilities, cyber professionals being such a high demand, low density asset, you know, does it, there's part of the argument, does it behoove us to consolidate those efforts um, versus to have them dispersed you know, assigned to different commanders. And I don't know the answer. Again, I'm not convinced either way right now, but I think it's a worthy debate that maybe we'll be having it for a while or maybe I'll be surprised and next thing you know, word will come out that there's a cyber corps under the Department of the Army, which will make us all even. We, Air Force would have the, the Space Force and Navy would have the Marines and Army have the cyber corps. How about that? I think the Marines would uh, be a little upset about you calling them equals with the Space Force and the cyber corps, but I think that's a valid point. <laughs> Uh, I think it's really interesting that you're you're speaking about the hesitancy of commanders and uh, splitting out the cyber portion of the Air Force. Uh, you know, and having to ask Mother May I because you know, the, there was a time when SOCOM splitting off and the special operators leaving the the combatant commanders um, and being their own combatant command was its own hotly debated topic um and, and it was not something that the, the combatant commands wanted to give up so i, I think that's really interesting it's a great analogy and now here we, 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 we we wouldn't think any we don't think anything of it, the fact that the special operators are, are separated out 
um, because they do work in a joint world and it makes tons of sense to us now. And the nightmare of authorities when dealing with special operators, for those who don't know, they operate under a completely different law from most military forces. So it can be a real issue if a combatant commander or even a local commander does not understand that his special operators use different authorities. Boom, cyber. They use all kinds of special authorities that sometimes the local commanders aren't even cleared for, to be perfectly honest. So it, it's it's fascinating that you bring that analogy because it really is perfect. Um, so one of, the, one of the things that I'm gonna circle back to here, we, we've talked a lot about the preparation for that near period, that pacing threat. We've, we've talked about that from a ops standpoint, we've talked about it from a cyber standpoint, but really it, it touches the entire Air Force. This, this is a holistic and a cultural shift uh, within the Air Force. What, what would you guys' suggestion be to our senior airmen, to our tech sergeants, to our lieutenants who are in a maintenance squadron, a logistics squadron, really any squadron, and are noticing the changes in the world and the changes in the priorities of our nation and just feel like they're not ready. Their unit isn't ready. They as a person aren't ready. What, how, do you, how do you think that, that those people that aren't necessarily commanders, aren't necessarily writing the doctrine, how do they get after those issues that they're... Well, I personally feel that some of the stuff we've talked about here, like taking seriously the pace plan, even having a pace plan, are things that can can happen bottom up. They don't have to happen top down. Um, you know, maybe you know there's some that you know, hear this podcast that are are thinking pace. What's that? And and then you know, we don't have a backup plan. We don't have an emergency plan, a contingency plan for for doing this. If the lights went out, we'd just be, you know, we'd be messed up. We wouldn't be able to operate. You know, they can take the initiative to say, hey, we need a better way. Um, and I, I think most commanders, at least, I mean. At least at the War College, you know, we have, and same thing at Air Command and Staff College. We have 05s, 04s coming through Air Command and Staff College, 05s and some 06s going through the War College. I know this is being echoed over and over to them. You know, they're being taught this stuff, and even the ones that don't come here, they do it online. This, these messages are being echoed, so they get it. So, you know, I have a hard time seeing, a, you know, an, an airman, an NCO, a CGO coming to their, their bosses that are at that level and them not getting it. If they say, you know, hey, sir, ma'am, you know, we, you know, here's what we do. If the lights went out, you know, here's, you know, we'd be stuck. Um, now there might, a conversation might ensue related to um, the, the likelihood of that happening. The, what's the, you know, worst case, what's the most likely case of that happening. And at some level, commanders also might just take risk, you know, to that. And I think as an airman, as a CGO, you know, they, hopefully the commander has that conversation with you and, gives you the why so you can understand that, you know, there are resource limitations, there are, you know, whether it's, you know, funding, whether it's people, whatever, time um, that might prohibit, you know, taking those, you know, the precautions that, that maybe you feel like they should. Um, I think it's at least worth a conversation. That's the thing, I, no matter if you're, a, you know, A1C or you're, you know, CGO or whoever, I think you can, if you notice, you know, something that just doesn't seem right or it seems like, you're not postured as a unit for strategic competition, great power competition with a peer competitor. You can take the initiative to, to make change. And I think the commanders are, are, are hearing the echoes enough to where, where they will listen. And then I just ask that you just understand that there's potential risk involved. Commanders accept risk, you know, levels of risk, and hopefully you help the commander understand what those risks are and let them make a, you know, informed decision. That's what I would say. Um, there's a popular joke where a politician walks in to the uh, assembled military staff and says, ladies and gentlemen, we have run out of money and we're now forced to think. So I would say, what, are, what can our force do out there? You're going to have to think. You're going to have to sit down and you're going to have to think that, yes, it can happen to us. Yes, we do have to have an alternate. There have been incidents across our Air Force of late even as recently as the power outages in Texas where bases were forced to come up with um, ways to survive as opposed to putting in an inject and saying, okay, well, yeah, we lost power, but we can still do the mission. Can you? So 
there's not a magic button. Um, JP50 gives you the concept of an operational planning team. Get together a couple of like-minded individuals, sit down and think through a problem. You might be surprised what you find out. That's pretty much right now the best thing we can do. Look at the world, don't pretend that it's gonna be a rough go, and sit down and try to think out how you would get through stuff. And if you come to a moment where you realize that we don't have a way to do this, take that to your boss and say, I have identified a significant issue and here's what I think we can do about it. Well, um, gentlemen, thanks a lot. Uh, it's been great talking about doctrine in the future uh, of the Air Force. Um, we really appreciate you taking the time out of your day uh, to come and speak with us on some topics that the two of us have near and dear to our heart. So I'm sure that there are others out there as well who have similar thoughts and opinions about some of the things that we're trying to speak and, and get the conversation going on about. So All right. thank you very much. Great conversation. Thanks for having us. Thank you, thank you very much. All right. That's going to do it for today's episode of the Deciphering Doctrine podcast. This podcast is produced by the LeMay Center, mixed by Air University Public Affairs, and conducted by students at Squadron Officer School. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.